Hi, my name is Maddie. The Old Testament reading is found in Zechariah 8, verses 14 through 17. The Lord of heavenly forces proclaims, Just as I planned evil against you when your ancestors angered me, says the Lord of heavenly forces, and did not relent, so now I have changed course and again planned to do good to Jerusalem and the house of Judah. Don't be afraid. These are things you should do. Speak the truth to each other. Make truthful, just, and peaceable decisions within your gates. Don't plan evil for each other. Don't adore swearing falsely. For all, these, for all of these are things that I hate, says the Lord. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Etienne. The New Testament reading is found in Ephesians 4, verses 20 to 24. But you didn't learn that sort of thing from Christ. Since you really listened to him, and you were taught how the truth is in Jesus, change the former way of life that was part of the person you once were, corrupted by evil desires. Instead, renew the thinking in your mind by the Spirit, and clothe yourself with a new person, created according to God's image, in justice and true holiness. The word of the Lord. Thank you for standing for the gospel. My name is David. The gospel reading is found in Matthew, chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. You have heard that it was said to those who lived long ago, don't commit murder. All who commit murder will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with their brother or sister will be in danger of judgment. If they say to their brother or sister, you idiot, they will be in danger of being condemned by the governing council. And if they say, you fool, they will be in danger of fiery hell. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. First, make things right with your brother or sister, then come back and offer your gift. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing as we pray. Gracious Father, we come before you this morning in the name of your Son, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would come and open our minds to understand the Scriptures. Help us to know and to see and to hear and to understand. And then by your Spirit, continue to change us and transform us into your image that we might go from this place and lead new kinds of lives that put you on display for the world. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. How are you today? 
Good. My name is Jason Jackson. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Downtown. And again, we want to welcome you into this place of worship, just as Jesus has welcomed us, so we welcome one another into this time together. As Evan said a couple of times, this is the third Sunday in Eastertide, this 50-day celebration of Jesus' resurrection. And during this season, we're in the midst of a preaching series entitled Living the Resurrection. We're taking a look at Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, and really exploring what does it mean to live the resurrection life here and now as we wait for the bodily resurrection to come? What does it mean to live as people who the Spirit, the same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead, is at work in our lives, bringing us into new ways and patterns of living here and now? And this book of Ephesians, really, it's divided into two parts. The first three chapters of the book, really, Paul in this three chapters is really unveiling what God's plans and purposes are for creation. He says that God has made known to us the mystery of his will to bring everything together, all things in heaven and on earth together in Christ. That through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has launched into his plan to bring about the restoration of all things. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul begins to unpack how is it we as the church participate in that? How is it that the church participates in God's great plans and purposes for all of creation? And he makes the transition from one half to the other by urging the church to live up to our calling, to live up to the calling that we've received to be a part of what it is that God's doing in and through Jesus. And he specifically uses in the midst of this passage the imagery of a scale. And he says, let the weight of your living be equal to the weight of your calling. That we should really live in the same way that that we've been called to. We've been called to this great, wonderful calling to participate in with what Jesus is doing. And now he calls us to live into that. A few verses later, he switches from this economic metaphor of scales to more of a biological metaphor. And he says, no longer live as kids, but grow up. Grow up into Christ, who is the head of the church. Really what Paul is doing in these three chapters is he's casting a vision for us of Christian maturity and calling us to do the kinds of things that help us to grow up in Christ and into our calling. Several years ago, uh, we were having one of those really delightful evening dinners with small children. You know, the kind where the entire meal and the food and the conversation is tainted by incessant whining, uh, where it's so hard to enjoy the food that you've been given to eat and the conversation with the people around the table because there's nothing but this ongoing complaint about the food that's on the plates. Uh, even though it was probably food that they've been served before and eaten before and enjoyed before, that for some reason, tonight, that was just not going to (laughs) happen. And in those places, my wife and I try to be as creative as we possibly can to encourage our kids to, you know, eat the food that we know that they need. But on this particular night, we were completely just at a loss. We did not know what to do. We had no more creative or imaginative ideas. Thankfully, my brother Scott was visiting with us that day, and he's a school counselor, so he works with kids all the time, and he decided to try a little reverse psychology on our kids. And so he just looked at me and said, oh, you know what? Don't eat that. Don't eat that food, because that's grow food. 
And if you eat that food, then you'll grow up. And we don't want that to happen. We want you to stay small and to not be able to do any new things. Um, so don't eat the grow food. And they bought it. Hook, line, and sinker. You know, suddenly they're like shoving broccoli into their mouth. Like, oh. And ever since then, it's become this sort of thing with them and my brother. Every time they see my brother, they look at him, and before they even say hi, they say, Uncle Scott, we've grown. We ate our grow food. It usually haven't, but <laughs> it worked just the one night. And they run up to him, they ask him to measure them, you know, on his body to see that they've grown. In fact, even our almost three-year-old has picked up on this. Uh, our, my brother called the other day, and I was talking to him on the phone in the car, and as soon as Lila realized it was Uncle Scott on the phone, she just yells out, Uncle Scott, I grewed! <laughs> he found a way to encourage them to do the very thing that was best for them. And I think this is what Paul's trying to do in his letter. He's trying to find a way to talk to this growing church and encourage them to do the things that they've been called to do so that they might grow up in Christ. When we are looking at this letter last week, uh, Glenn began to unpack the first few verses of this chapter. He talked to us about Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, and he said that part of this growing up is learning to live in unity with one another, recognizing that God has brought us all together in Christ. He's brought us from different places. He's brought different people together into one new family. And so part of growing up is learning to live like family, learning to live in light of the unity that God has created. And Paul says, therefore, make an effort to preserve the unity that God has created amongst you. And he says that when we do so, we actually begin to put God's plans on display. We become a signpost for what it is that God wants to do. As people are brought together, we can begin to get a picture of God bringing all things together in Christ. And this morning, we're going to look at the rest of Ephesians 4 and Paul's appeal to us to live as new people, to live in a new way. And he begins in Ephesians 4.17 by saying this. He says, so I'm telling you this, and I insist on it in the Lord you shouldn't live your life like the Gentiles anymore. Which is a really interesting phrase because earlier in the letter, Paul lets us know that the majority of the church in Ephesus is, is Gentile. The majority of the people that he's writing to are those who did not grow up with Jewish faith. They did not grow up Jewish. They grew up other than Jewish. They're Gentiles. And what Paul is saying to this group of Gentiles is Gentiles don't live like Gentiles. He's instructing them to not live according to who they used to be, but to live according to now who they are. In fact, as he goes on in the letter, he begins to disassociate the church from the Gentiles. He says, you shouldn't live like them because you are no longer one of them, but you are now in Christ. And in Christ, you are a new person. You've been brought into a new identity. Paul's really picking up on what he said back in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, he reminded the church that you were once Gentiles by birth, and that at that time you were without Christ. You were strangers and aliens to the covenant people of God, and that you were without God and without hope in the world. 
But now Christ has come and you are now in him. And he goes on to say that this is one of the things that Jesus is doing is he's bringing Jew and Gentile together into one new group, into one new person, into one new humanity. So because we are new people in Christ, we can live a new way by the Spirit. No longer live like Gentiles. No longer live like we used to live. But now you are in Christ. And because we are in Christ, we are new people. And we can live a new way because of the Spirit's work within us. Before he begins to articulate, though, exactly what that new way looks like, he diagnoses the old way. He begins to say, let me show you what the problem with the old way of living was. And he says this, he says, they, meaning the Gentiles, those without God, base their lives on pointless thinking. And they are in the dark in their reasoning. They are disconnected from God's life because of their ignorance and their closed hearts. They are people who lack all sense of right and wrong and who have turned themselves over to doing whatever feels good and to practicing all, every sort of corruption along with greed. Paul asserts that those who are disconnected from God are living life in the dark. We're walking around darkness and that this darkness has distorted their moral compass and set them out on a wrong path. As I was reading this passage, it reminded me of that scene in Finding Nemo. Any Nemo Pixar fans in the room? That scene where uh, Dory and Marlin are going chasing after the scuba mask, you know, the P. Sherman Wallaby Way uh, mask, and the, the mask is falling deeper and deeper into the ocean, and they go swimming after it. And as they swim along, everything gets darker and darker and darker. And before you know it, they're in this place, and everything is pitch black. And they're swimming around there for a while, and all of a sudden, they glimpse this tiny light. And our fish friends sort of swim over to it, and Dory, in her best Ellen DeGeneres voice, looks at the light and says, it's so pretty. Then Marlin swims over and he says, oh, I feel good, which is really a big deal for me. (laughs) And then Dory says, oh, I want to touch it. And before you know it, they're singing, dancing, and chasing this light all around. I mean, it's fun. It looks good. It feels good. So obviously, it must be good. And then very slowly, in the background, begins to emerge that this picture of a fish. Because this light is not just a light, but it's attached to a very hungry very angry, very mean-looking anglerfish. This light was a trap to get them to come forward so this fish might eat them. We begin to see it develop in the background. All of a sudden, Marlin turns and looks and sees the fish, and he says, good feeling's gone, and they begin to swim away. Obviously, they survived because they made a sequel. (laughs) But you get this sense like, oh, it looks good. It feels good. It must be good but they're swimming in the dark. They can't actually see the full picture. They can't see what this is attached to, what it's connected to, where this might lead. This is what darkness does. Darkness distorts. It impairs our vision and begins to drown out our senses. 
And when it's our minds that are darkened, it has this massive impact on us where our moral vision begins to be diminished. And in those places, we, like those fish, begin to gravitate to whatever feels good, regardless of whether or not it is good. We begin to go in that same place. And this is the kind of life that Paul is unpacking here. But then he goes on to say, but this is not the kind of life that we learned from Christ. He says, beginning in verse 20, but you didn't learn that sort of thing from Christ since you really listened to him and you were taught how the truth is in Jesus, change the former way of life that was part of the person you once were, corrupted by deceitful desires. Instead, renew the thinking in your mind by the Spirit and clothe yourself with the new person created according to God's image in justice and true holiness. In the original language here, Paul literally says, take off. Take off the old. Take off the former. Take off what's been corrupted. Let your mind be renewed by the Spirit and then put on the new. He's encouraging and challenging those who have been recreated in Jesus to take off the old and to put on the new, to exchange what's been corrupted for what's been created. Say, take this off and put this on. Paul is actually using baptism imagery here. In the early church, one of the things that was common in some baptism practices is that when people go to the water of baptism, they would enter in the water and they would take off all of their clothes, the clothes that symbolized their old life, their old way of living. Then they'd be baptized, and as they came up out of the water, they'd be given a new set of clothes, symbolizing that they're going to live in a radically new and different way. For those of you who were baptized here last week, I know you're really thankful that that practice has changed uh, a little bit here over the course of time, but the meaning of baptism has not changed. When we go under the water, we are identifying ourselves with Christ and saying that our former way of life has been crucified with him. And when we come up out of the water, we recognize that we've been raised with Christ into a new kind of life. We've been made new people to live in a new way, that we've been been made alive to God in Christ and made dead to sin. So we may begin to live in an entirely different sort of way. Really what he is saying here is that this new way of life is a resurrection life. It's a new life that's been empowered by the Spirit in the same way of the resurrection. And it corresponds to God's image and is characterized by justice and by holiness. In other words, this new way of life that we're called to live in actually puts God on display. It's the kind of life that actually addresses the wrongs in the world. And it's the kind of life that prevents further wrongs from happening by living in right relationship with God and one another. It's a life characterized by justice and by holiness. So Paul begins then to move into, in this final section, talking about what that actually looks like. What does a resurrection life look like here and now? 
And Paul specifically goes on to show that God wants to bring us new life. As new people, he wants to bring us new life in three particular places that Paul addresses in this chapter. He says he wants to bring us new life in our words, in our work, and in our wounds. In our words, in our work, and in our wounds. This is what he says. He says, therefore, after you have gotten rid of lying, each of you must tell the truth to your neighbor because we are parts of each other in the same body. Be angry without sinning. Don't let the sun set on your anger. Don't provide an opportunity for the devil. Thieves should no longer steal. Instead, they should go to work, using their hands to do good so they will have something to share with whoever is in need. Don't let any foul words come out of your mouth. Only say what is helpful when it is needed for building up the community so that it benefits those who hear what you say. Don't make the Holy Spirit of God unhappy. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. So put aside all bitterness, losing your temper, anger, shouting, and slander, along with every other evil. Instead, be kind, compassionate, and forgiving to each other in the same way that God forgave you in Christ. So as new people... God wants to bring new life through our words. He wants us, and this passage specifically says, to take off falsehood, right? To take off lying, to take off the kind of speech that destroys and tears down, tears down, to take off everything that is false and evil, and instead put on truth-telling and edifying speech to put on speaking the truth and love to one another and building one another up through our words. So our words have this incredible power to be able to distort and deceive and divide, or our words can be used to reveal and unite and build relationships and build one another up. And we live in a world where words are primarily used for one way as opposed to the other. We live in a world right now that's characterized by, false, by fake news, by phony Facebook profiles, right? By brand protection and false advertising, by gossip and by spin, by exaggeration and manipulation. These are the ways that we use words. But God is saying, no, not that way, but a new way. Rather than using our words to deceive and divide, God is inviting us into a resurrection life that brings new life through our words, that our words become something that actually reveal truth, that reveal reality for what it really is, that shows the plans and purposes of God and begins to unite and build up rather than to deceive and divide. What would it look like as God's people if this was true of our words? That in each of our relationships, we think about our relationship with our spouses, or our relationship with our kids, our relationships with one another, our relationship with our coworkers or our classmates, our neighbors, our friends, or even people that we've never met before, that our speech was seasoned with truth and with that which builds up rather than distorts and deceives. Because when we do this, 
when we live as new people with a new way of life, we participate in what God wants to do to bring all things together in Jesus and build things all up into him. In addition to wanting to bring new life through our words, God wants to bring new life through our work. It's really fascinating here. Probably my favorite passage in this whole section is what Paul says here. He says, thieves should not steal. Like, okay, yeah, that sounds, that's, that sounds good. That probably is not going to go well for everybody. Then he goes on and he says, instead, they should work which is probably what we'd all say. Yeah, okay, instead of taking things from people in order to meet either real or perceived needs, instead, work to meet those needs yourself. Okay, stop this, do this. Paul actually doesn't stop in that middle place. He goes on and says, no, actually, we should do good work with our hands in order to be able to give to those who are in need possibly to give to those in need is saying to be able to prevent the very things that caused you to steal in the first place. You found yourself at one point in need, and therefore you were tempted to steal. But rather than just saying, hey, stop stealing and start working, he says, no, do good work so that you can actually break the cycle. So you can actually become the kind of person that makes it harder for people to have to move into places of being tempted to steal. See, when we think about our work, oftentimes we only think in terms of what it is that we have to gain. We often only think in terms of what our work means for us personally. We think in terms of our pay and our benefits. Or we think about maybe the joy that we have in our coworkers or in the thing that we're doing. Or we think maybe about the significance that we feel in that particular career or occupation. But sometimes we go so far as thinking about those things and we put aside whatever that might mean for anybody else, whatever that might cost someone, and whether or not the work is actually good. In her, actual, in her brilliant essay, Dorothy Sayers defined Christian work as good work well done. It's a brilliant and simple definition, but she says that our work should be just and fair. We should do it diligently and faithfully so that what we do might actually benefit others and not just ourselves. What would it look like if we developed the kinds of companies and career opportunities in Colorado Springs where mercy and justice and generosity mattered as much, if not more, than personal or corporate gain? What would it look like if there was new life that came through our work, that actually brought new life to other people, that caused them maybe to even to realize the goodness and the truth of God, and that they too might become new people and be able to do good work? And the final thing that he says is that as new people, God wants to bring new life through our wounds, through the very things that we suffer in the midst of this world. Paul summons us really to not allow the wounds that we suffer to become wounds that we inflict. This is commonly what happens. We get hurt, and then in turn we hurt. Hurt people hurt people. This is the cycle that we find ourselves in, but God invites us into a new space. 
to live as new people, to live a resurrection kind of life that says that rather than allowing our anger to turn into wrath and and then from there turn into retribution or vengeance, we're called to pursue reconciliation. By being the kind of people that responds to our anger, not with wrath, but with kindness and compassion and forgiveness. Be the kind of people who try to understand what is it that caused that person to hurt me the way that they did. And to become the kind of people that seek not to repay evil for evil, but to repay evil with good. Become the kind of people that extend forgiveness. Interestingly, I love this aspect about Paul here, that Paul encourages us to forgive, but he doesn't tell us not to be angry. I think sometimes when we think about forgiveness, we think that means pretending what happened to us didn't actually happen. And we think it means minimizing or justifying or explaining away the wounds that we suffered. Paul's not saying that. He says, no, be angry. It is okay to be angry about the wrongs that, have, that are done in the world. It's okay to be angry and hurt about the things that have done to us that hurt us. He says, but don't let anger turn into an opportunity for sin. Don't let anger turn into something more. In his beautiful book on forgiveness, Miroslav Voth says that forgiveness has to entail two elements. The first element, he says, is that wrongdoing must be named and condemned. He says, in order to actually be forgiveness, we have to say what it was that was wrong. And we have to clearly name it and say, that is not right that is not good, that is not true, that is not acceptable, that is not the truth and the way and the beauty that we know in God. That is wrong, that is evil. What you did to me really hurt. We name it and we condemn it. We call things for what they are. We don't excuse them or justify them. Then he goes on to say that wrongdoing must not be counted against the offender that rather than trying to repay it against the person who committed wrongdoing against us, we don't repay it. Instead, we extend forgiveness. Now, it's important to note whenever we talk about forgiveness as a church, that the hope of forgiveness is always reconciliation. That God wants to, through forgiveness, to bring new life, and that new life, the idea is new relationship. That, that relationship that was strained or torn apart by the very thing that happened to us, the hope would be that new life would come through our wounds and that relationship would move into a new place. But that is not always what happens. Reconciliation requires forgiveness. It requires that we extend forgiveness and it requires that the person who hurt us receives forgiveness. But it also requires that they repent and change. God does not ask us to keep going back into places of hurt and pain over and over again with people who refuse to change, who refuse to say that what they're doing is actually wrong and evil. He calls us to name it, to condemn it, to not hold it against the person, to do everything that we can to pursue reconciliation and new life in that relationships. But relationships involve two people. And so that person also must receive forgiveness, repent and name what they did is wrong, and be willing to change. 
In that way, then God is able to bring new life into that relationship. But I don't think that's the only way that God wants to bring new life through our wounds. I think there are other ways, too, that God wants to resurrect the things that have happened to us and turn them into opportunities to actually minister to and help other people. As I was thinking about this this morning, I was reminded uh, of the time when um, I was in high school and my parents separated and divorced when I was in high school. And we were coming up on that moment of trying to figure out what does it actually look like for dad to move out of the house. He'd left, but all of his stuff was still there. And it came into this conversation. We packed all, all of dad's clothes and all of dad's things and said, okay, it's time for dad to come over and pick everything up. My mom was a wreck. And I felt at that time that I, I needed to be the one that met my dad there in the garage and packed up his things. Heartbreaking, painful, very much a situation that I never wished I had found myself in. And the kinds of wounds that my dad had impacted on her family kind of spread out and rippled to multiple people in multiple generations. And years later, though, I was a youth pastor, and I found myself in a conversation with a high school student whose dad was, had committed some horrible acts, and it was time for dad to move out of the house. And in that moment, there became an opportunity for me to step in and meet that dad in his garage and pack up those things so that those kids didn't need to. And it was amazing in that moment, the sort of healing that I began to feel. Of saying, wow, that wasn't just a wound I endured, but somehow God brought new life through this. What wounds have we suffered this morning? What are the things that have happened? And is it possible that you as a new person in Christ has been called to live in a new way by the Spirit? that God might want to bring new life through your wounds to somebody else this morning, to somebody else in your life, either today or next week or next month or next year. What might be possible? What kind of healing might he be able to bring to somebody else as he's also bringing healing to you? See, we are new people created in God's image. We've been invited to live in a new way according to the Spirit. And when we live in this way, we actually put God's plans and purposes on display. When we allow new life to come to our words, our words follow the one whose words brought life and healing and restoration to everything. The one who spoke words and created all and whose very word sustains life. When we allow new life to come through our work, our work follows the one who by the work of his hands fed the hungry and healed the sick and set the captives free. And when we allow new life to come through our wounds, our wounds are gathered up in him, the one who suffered wounds on our behalf, that we might find the forgiveness, the healing, the restoration, and the resurrection that we all need. Amen?